0: Brennan turning back to Stepney. Stepney comes out this time, kicks it right-footed high inside the Benfica half. A chance here for George Best, George Best is through, he goes round Enrique, he must score, George Best must score, George Best has scored!
1: I was a shoe business personality, and football had never had one. Uh, and they just, I don't think anyone knew how to handle it, you know, least of all me, I had no idea what, what was going to happen
0: minute of extra time. George Best has put Manchester United into the lead. Bobby Charlton sinks to his knees. Nobby Stiles does a cartwheel. United are in the lead again. Two goals to one. Two and a half minutes into this first period of extra time. A brilliant bit of running there by George Best, who saw the gap, went round a defender, took Enrique one way, jinked round him. That's the goalkeeper. Went forward again and slammed it into an empty net. There it is.
2: I don't think anybody could really foresee foreseen what was going to happen later on. Um, obviously, if they could have foreseen it, possibly they would have done something about it, but um, we would never had in football uh, anybody quite like George.
3: He went on this path, you know, he didn't seem to be able to turn back at all and it seemed to be sort of, it was going to be disaster one way or the other for him. But it was a great tragedy because he was a great player, he was, he was a, an unbelievable player, one of the greatest and most skillful players that anyone probably has ever seen.
1: thing was all down to the one thing and that was booze and it was starting to it was starting to control me as opposed to me controlling it which you know I now know was uh, I, I was an alcoholic and, uh, but in those days I mean I had no I would, you would never have got me to admit it
4: George Best, former European and British footballer of the year and the star of a Manchester United team that won the European Cup in 1968. Today, George Best is 38 and his personal life is a story of nightclubs, fast cars, beautiful women and the final tragedy of alcoholism. But his career began at the age of 15 in 1961 when he left Belfast for Manchester United.
1: Well, I was like you know, most kids my age. You know, I, I kicked the ball around the streets of Belfast and played for the school team and also the local youth club and I had the Manchester United scout saw me play for the boys club and invited me to go over and I was just one of thousands of kids that were invited over to English clubs uh, I went off not really expecting to stay too long it was sort of more of an, an adventure, a trip really and never dreaming that you know I would end up playing for you know, one of the greatest clubs in the world. I remember him arriving
5: at United uh, there were quite a few Irish lads there, there was myself, Eamon Dunphy, uh, Tony Dunn, John Giles, Shay Brennan, Harry Gregg was there at the time, but even so, he was only 15, he was coming to the big city for the first time, and like many of us who uh, arrived there, we felt we wanted
1: to go straight home, and George did, within 24 hours. I went home, uh, to the amazement of my mum and dad, of course. Uh, But they took it quite calmly, and my my dad called up and spoke to Sir Matt Busby to make sure I hadn't got into any sort of trouble. (laughs) He couldn't believe that I'd sort of thrown a chance away. Anyway, they spoke to each other and uh, decided they'd give me another chance. I went back, I think, around about a month later, and, and stayed there right up until my 17th birthday when I signed professional.
4: It was the early 1960s, and the young George Best, now just 17, soon won a place on the Manchester United first-team panel. He was playing with players and stars like Dennis Law, who had joined Manchester United from Italian club Torino. The year
6: was 1963. The following season, I was injured, and it was about September, and I was in the stand sitting next to uh, Matt Busby, and he had thrown this young kid in called George Best, playing on the right wing, and it was against West Bromwich Albion. And I sat there and I thought, well, of course, I'd seen the boy in training and we had played five asides. So he would obviously exceptional skill, but to play in a first division game was something a little bit different. And when I saw him for the first time, against an experienced fullback, it was Williams of West Brom, and he was the Welsh international, I think he was the Welsh captain at the time. The boy looked, he looked right. He did everything right in front of 50-odd thousand people, you know, which is not exactly easy. And you can see from the very beginning that here was a boy who was going to play many, many times for Ireland and entertain the world with the type of football that he
5: was showing at such an early age. Everyone at Old Trafford, uh, all the great players, were impressed uh, by his skills. He was great at going past people either side, left or right, two-footed. He was good in the air for a little fella, and he was very tough. Uh, lots of people tried to kick him. In that game against West Brom, he played against Graham Williams, who was a tough Welsh left-back. Uh, but he wasn't intimidated. It wasn't easy to intimidate. Um, he, after that game, he went back into reserves uh, for t- three months. Uh, but when he got back into the side uh, against Burnley at Old Trafford, it was ironically because uh, one of the very greatest players, Bobby Charlton, was injured.
3: I remember it particularly because I... I had a not a personal friend of mine, but a a, a pal that I knew who came from the north of England called John Angus, who was the right back at Burnley, and uh, and John Angus was a good player. I mean, he was fast, he was strong, he had a, he had a presence, you know, that wingers sort of tended to sort of stay away if you could, you know. Quite a tough character, John, and um, and I never used to like playing against my own pals, so, because I used to think to myself, you know you don't really want to embarrass your own. I, I hated sort of playing against George Cohen, who was a good pal, and Jimmy Armfield when they were right back and I was loving it. Because I got no pleasure in knocking the ball past them and running past them. Sometimes I couldn't do it, but I got no pleasure when I was able to. Um, and and George was playing against uh, John Angus and he absolutely turned him inside out. And for a, a youngster at that age, I, I mean... John Angus, to be fair, you know, was coming probably to the end of his career, but nevertheless it it seemed cruel that a youngster should have no respect for somebody as good as john angus and he He turned him inside out and um, and it was quite embarrassing really and if if there's a hole in the ground, John Angus would have gone and buried himself in it
1: of course, I mean being seventeen and coming into the team that I came into i mean it was it was even easier to play, you know we had players like we had a full international squad, really, you know there were Harry Gregg was there, uh, getting towards the end of his career, and Alex Stepney came later, Paddy Creran, Bill Foulkes, Nobby Styles, And of course, we had the three players that everyone talked about, you know, Dennis Law, Bobby Charlton and myself. You know, so we had a real star-studded team, uh, great individuals, but Busby had this wonderful knack of combining these sort of individuals into a complete team. and. Uh, it was a pleasure to play for them you know tactics were non-existent really we were told to go out and enjoy it they, they gave us a ball and that was it you know I think they figured we knew enough about the game to have without have to sit there and go over tactics for two or three hours
7: Georgia, Georgia, they call you the Belfast boy Georgia, Georgia, they call you the Belfast boy by 1964,
4: George Best, now only 18 years of age, had become a star of the Manchester United side. He was also selected as a Northern Ireland international, and his football career was packed with action.
1: I played against Arsenal on the Saturday, Swindon in the first leg of the. Youth Cup final on the Monday. Northern Ireland against Uruguay on Wednesday. The Thursday the second leg of the Youth Cup, which we won against Swindon, and then the following Saturday another league game. So in those days, I mean I just I loved it, you know, there was so much football. I, w- I would have played on the Friday as well if I could have done that week.
8: Georgie, called
7: you the joy Play the game. Play the game.
4: And almost more importantly, the fans at Old Trafford in Manchester had taken to this teenage, good-looking, talented Irish kid, supporters club secretary Dave Smith.
8: I got to the stage where I would rather see George take on the fifth man, even if it meant him losing the ball. I didn't want to see a winger going down the line to the byline, pulling the ball back and crossing it for either Dennis or Bobby to score. Yes, you wanted to see that now and again. But more than anything, you wanted to see George Best bouncing the ball off other player's shins, getting the rebound, going through past another man, and keep going. Uh, Because every so often, he'd take the fifth man, he'd beat the fifth man, and the ball would finish in the back of the net. Or he'd lay it on for somebody like Dennis or Bobby. And that was the magic of George. You didn't want him to stop. Downfield
7: he goes, but upfield come Northern Ireland with McLaughlin onto it. McLaughlin through there to little Best. Centrefield goes Best, and he's clear. Best goes clear. He's just outside the goal. He must go, I think. Best is there, and it's the goal.
4: Despite his football genius it wasn't until 1966 that George Best rose to superstar status. The previous season Manchester United had won the league championship. They were now in the European Cup and on the 9th of March 1966 they trounced the famous Portuguese team Benfica in Lisbon. Dennis Law
6: After the Benfica game in Lisbon when we won 5-1 I think it was round the Beatles time and of course George had this long black hair a good-looking boy and it was sort of headlined El Beetle, you know, which was best. And, of course, that went right around the world, because Benfica at the time was such a good side, and to get beat 5-1 at home was a disgrace. But, of course, honor for the other team, and that was us. We played brilliant that night, but Bestie was a bit exceptional. And from then on, he got into the sort of, well, a sort of swinging 60s.
4: It was still 1966, the Beatles at their peak, George Best now owner of a boutique in Manchester and voted third in the poll for Footballer of the Year. Things couldn't have been better, but the pressure on Best was already beginning. One of his friends in Manchester, Jeff Baker, remembers.
9: Wherever George was, if Elton John was in Manchester for example, Elton John would find George to have a drink with George Best, not vice versa. I remember when when George had his club in Manchester, Slack Alice, that in itself isn't conducive to being a professional sportsman, you know, working there till 2, 3 o'clock every morning, having to be in training for 9, 9.30 the following morning. Um, but when, you know, when he was working in Slacks, any any personality that was in Manchester, Mick Jagger, Elton John has already mentioned, anybody at all would always come to the club and expect George to be there till 3 and 4, or till they felt like stopped speaking to him, or really, asking questions, and, and he was more than willing to entertain them. You know, so all that really, I
1: suppose, affected his football life. Uh, You know, magazines are calling me constantly. I'm being quoted. Everything I I say is is appearing in print, Uh, usually not accurately. (laughs) Uh, Every time I date a girl, it's in the newspapers. Uh, I'm being asked my opinion on everything, you know, from politics right down to whatever. Uh, The... The public, of course, you know, things like little things like going to the supermarket became impossible or taking a dog for a walk. Uh, you know, it was like rolling a gauntlet, you know, uh, signing autographs, I don't mind, but it's just, uh, I'd become public property, really.
9: Everywhere he went, whether it be a pub or a club, people wanted to talk to him about football, about himself, other people, maybe drunks, wanted to have a go at him, maybe pick a fight with him. He had to put up with all this sort of thing. And still try and, and be a normal person makes it very hard. Um, if it wasn't the public, it was the press, they'd often be watching him all the time. If he's out in a club, they'd be seeing which girl he's with, trying to take a photograph on the way out. So, all in all, it was a very hard time for George. He had the problem of
6: being single, his family back in Northern Ireland, living in digs, whereas myself, say Bobby and Pat, Alec, we could go home after the game, you know, which the United crowd make you like a god. But we had to go back to the, to the house, to nappies and screaming kids, you know, running noses. But Bestie didn't. In 1968, George Best was finally voted
4: European and British Footballer of the Year. He was still only 22, and Manchester United were participating in the European Cup. The team were successful that season, and the European campaign just had to succeed. Eamon Dunphy.
5: Well, well, it was a very special link between Manchester United and the European Cup, Matt Busby was the first Englishman, uh, first English manager, to take a side into Europe. And it was against the wishes of the Football League. English football has always been inward-looking, and he was outward-looking. And United had gone in, done very well against uh, Real Madrid and Milan, and all the great European sides. So every time there was a European Cup occasion at Old Trafford, it was emotive, there was a heavy atmosphere. The atmosphere was heavy with nostalgia, uh, expectation. And in 1968, United looked to have a side that could win it. Uh, And winning it really was about redeeming the past, about the Munich air crash and fulfilling the dreams that the club had had ever since that air crash.
7: On the fringe of a Munich airport lies the wreckage of an airliner, still smouldering from a crash in which 21 people were killed. Tragedy enough at any time. But in that plane were a group of young men who were almost the personal friends of millions. Manchester United, the finest soccer team Britain has produced since the war.
4: That and Munich air crash back in 1958 was the backdrop to the United campaign ten years later. The final was at Wembley in London. United made it to that European Cup final. Their opponents, Benefica, from Lisbon.
1: The fact that, of course, that earlier the Manchester United air crash, you know, and the lads had been in Europe from that team... It was as if Manchester United had to be the first English club to win it. you know. And it was Everything just seemed... It, you couldn't have written a better film script, really. Bobby Charlton and
7: Coluna exchanged Manchester United and Benfica payments. The moment of truth in the battle for mastery of European soccer had arrived. United, playing in blue, kicked off.
4: United launched directly into attack. In the first half at Wembley, there was no score, yet Best was having one of his greatest games.
7: Best again with the ball He seemed to be a target for the
4: stop them at any cost Benfica
7: defence But Italian referee Lobello let that one go Benfica had the advantage but made a stonewall United rearguard
4: In the second half, however, Manchester United scored first
7: Hard-working best put the ball out to the left Where Sadler had been playing like a demon The return centre was a beauty Charlton headed it home
4: Unfortunately for United, Benefica equalised, and at full time, the score was
7: 1-1. And so on into the first half of extra time. And what a 15 minutes it was. Stephanie collected and fed his forwards. Waiting to receive was mighty best. He simply walked the ball into the net.
1: The atmosphere, as you can imagine, tremendous. Uh, One-one, and it, the game could have gone either way. And then, in, in overtime, we just played some tremendous stuff. I was fortunate enough to get the the first goal in in in, in extra time. Uh, Brian Kidd got another one, and Bobby finished them off, you know, and ended up a tremendous four-one result.
7: Manchester United had well and truly done it. They were supreme soccer champions of Europe. At last, Matt Busby, the maestro of Manchester United, had groomed a team great enough to beat Europe's best. He was king of soccer. His wonderful 11 men were all princes.
1: I was still only 21, 22. You know, we'd won the league championship twice. I was European Player of the Year, British Player of the Year. We'd won the European Cup. (laughs) Uh, You know, things couldn't have been better, really, looking at it. Uh, Then, unfortunately, it went a little bit. You know 68 should have been the start of something really special you know we should have gone on i felt to win the european cup possibly you know at least a couple more times uh with the the support we had the money that the club had the players that were available uh a few of the players were getting towards the, the end of their careers so the team we knew was starting to break up or would start to break up i could see it i could see it happening a little bit uh and also i was getting more and more pressure from outside the game itself
5: the press the tabloid press hounded him uh, for stories invented stories invented relationships and that's very very difficult to take for anybody and it's very difficult to take for a footballer a young footballer he lived in a big house on his own which was uh, very difficult it was called super loo at the time it was a big glass uh, futuristic glass house in uh, cheshire so he had lots of pressures in his life and don't forget playing football is hard enough at the very highest level that he played in But despite that, um, most of the players couldn't see that he was drinking too much. Everyone had to drink after a match, but people couldn't really see the signs. Not even experienced players, uh, someone like Dennis Law, who was a Scotsman, would have seen plenty of drinking in his time. Uh, Couldn't spot any uh, boozy signs uh,
6: from George, no. Because if we played in London, say against Arsenal or Spurs, and and we won, we come back in the train, which took about three and a bit hours in those days. Now, there was no drinking before the game, but everybody liked a beer after the game, and we would have quite a few beers from London to Manchester. And Bestie would have had maybe three or four laggers. And that went on for a long time, years and years. He never, ever showed that he was drinking anything else but maybe a lager after the game and that included being abroad as well, so the signs of Bestie drinking too much was never evident when he was with the team and when he was with me or when we arrived in Manchester I might go for a couple of beers and it was a couple of beers, Bestie as well but when we left he must have then been drinking a bit heavier and maybe into the shorts but In front of us, and certainly in front of me, he never showed any signs at all. A, yes, women were uh, running after him. We saw that. We saw that in London. We saw it in the train. We could see it when we come back to Manchester. But any of that high, really hard living was not seen. And it wasn't seen in the morning because when he came in for training, he would train very hard. He was probably one of the best trainers in the club. And it wasn't until... We got into the sort of 60s, uh, the 70s, the late 60s, early 70s, that for the first time he missed training. Now we'd all say, "Well, you know, where's Bestie? Well, he's not come. He's not coming. He's not at his digs." Oh, well, to me it didn't make any difference. He might have been elsewhere on business or whatever. He might have had permission. But then when he didn't turn up for the game, which was against Chelsea in London, and Matt Busby had come back to manage the club. Uh, Then I thought, yes, something's wrong with the boy. Radio Manchester, number one for sport.
8: And George Best is in the news again. The United Star has been suspended for two weeks with a full loss of pay following his failure to turn up in London for Saturday's game with Chelsea.
4: By now, it was 1971, three years after the European Cup success, and Best was already, on his own admission, drinking too much. After his suspension by United, he was joined at a press conference by Matt Busby, the United manager.
6: George has come and seen me this morning, and we've discussed his problems. And actually, with them, he's had this sort of problem inside him, and it's been building up and building up.
1: Well, firstly, I've I've apologised to Mr Busby, and the uh, United Club, for the way I behaved over the weekend, which uh, was completely wrong, and I know it was. But uh, I finally came to see the boss about the problems I had, which are private and personal, and I, w- I, won't, s- I won't tell anyone what they are. The only person I can speak to about it is the boss. And I've sat down
4: so Best to to was back with United, but his problem, however, got worse. The drinking increased, the nightlife intensified, and soon George Best began to miss training. His friend, Jeff Baker.
9: I mean, I think the first time he went missing from Old Trafford, he was probably 23. Um, and that was largely down to him being out late at night, not being able to... He's not the best person at getting up in the morning, George. Um, so, yes, George needed no encouragement to go out and enjoy himself. And he was always the last one to want to go home. If George could keep you up, he would. <laughs> Four, or five, and even later sometimes. You know, I've, I've known George go to, straight to training from being out. But apparently, according to the rest of the players who we knew at the time, it didn't change his attitude to training. He still gave hundred percent in in training.
1: Any training I missed, you know, I used to think I was making up for it by working twice as hard. You know, when I did go and train, uh, and I, I I could have taken it easy. I I could have taken easy, I could have turned up for training and gone through the motions, but I felt that because of the state I was in, I was better off not just not showing up. And then, of course, that reputation started to hang on to me. You know, I was unreliable and, you know, they were never sure if I would show up and if I would, if I did show up, what sort of state I was going to be in. I mean, we,
5: we
3: really just had to read in the papers sometimes, you know, what was happening with George and uh, and the problems that he was having with the various managers, etc. cetera. Um, me being captain, I, I was usually left at my door, you know, to, to go and have a word with the manager or whatever to see what was going on because it's terribly embarrassing for for fully fledged, fledged pros to be going running five and ten mile runs you know and George wasn't there I mean it was a team game and if George was playing there on a Saturday I mean a lot of people would have thought that he should have been doing his training like everyone else and had George done his training like everyone else and and, and knuckled down to it and then, then I think probably would have lasted a lot longer in the game than he did.
2: Uh, there, was, there was resentment amongst the players. Uh, I think the sort of resentment that you would get from anybody, I mean, over and above everything else, I mean, uh, whilst we were lucky to be professional footballers, it was work for us, and we had to work uh, and train, and the majority of us had to, had to do all that in order to attain uh, the, uh, and, and maintain the sort of level we were at. George... Uh, obviously, he had this phenomenal ability, this incredible gift of, of being able to play football. But, and he had natural sort of fitness and so on, but, but, even he obviously couldn't couldn't abuse that. Uh, as that became more apparent as as uh, the deeper, if you like, that he got, he, he got into. It.
4: Manchester of the early 1970s, a vibrant city full of nightclubs, the opportunities for drink and sex, and George Best, superstar, was both
1: drinking a lot and chasing a lot of women. I enjoyed female company. You know, uh, I was a normal, healthy human being. Uh, and I enjoyed the company of, of beautiful women, and I also I was in a position, I suppose, to, to have quite a few uh, available, and also. Not only because of who I was, but I was in the nightclub business as well, where there was always plenty of girls around. And I was just, in that area, that wasn't a problem. I mean, women were never a problem, contrary to what people think. My problem was was alcohol, yeah, and and being confused and not being able to decide what I wanted for myself, because I didn't know. How much were you boozing at the time? Was it an awful lot? Well, I just, I mean, I didn't have a set routine of booze. I just drank, you know. Sometimes, I, you know, I would go out at lunchtime and it would continue the next day and then other times I'd go for weeks on end without a drink. I became what's known as a a binge drinker. I went on binges. you It could last for days, sometimes months, uh, with all the consequences. And yet George Best
4: was still playing for United. Ironically, one of his opponents in games was England star Jimmy Greaves. He played for Tottenham, then later for West Ham. He was also an alcoholic and he explains his views of why Best was taking to drink
8: it's the easiest thing in the world because you see the one consolation you, you you get with booze is that you you lose um as we all know because i'm sure most of us have done it from time to time uh you you move you remove that sense of reality um you know everything's an illusion they say reality is only an illusion brought upon by the lack of alcohol um and I think once you get a few beers inside you, or whatever, you find, and I found this myself, that you were far uh, more able to cope with the situation uh, than uh, than you were without it. And 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 you got to the stage where if you had a few more, it didn't worry you too much anyway. And I think uh, th- this was the situation that I found myself in. I think other people have found themselves in, in, in other, Sports in 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 other realms of entertainment, and I think this was the situation that happened to George. In
4: 1972, at the age of 26, it appeared that best career was over. On the 22nd of November of that year, he missed trading. On the 28th of November, he missed trading. And the following day, was accused of causing bodily harm to a 20-year-old waitress at Reuben's nightclub in Manchester. He was suspended by the club and on December 5th, 1972, placed on the transfer list by the United manager, Franco Farrell.
9: Yeah, as far as myself is concerned... Um I gave him the advice in the best interest of george as a human being and as an individual apart from the fact that he was a manchester united player and uh, i've punished him but punishing is the easy part of the job Uh, i can take money i can find them i can suspend them that's easy Uh, if it was successful if it brought results one would get some satisfaction from it but i've said to george many times that i would rather he left my office and one little spark tiny spark of advice that i would given him for his own good would have sunk in And this would have given me more satisfaction in taking fines and money off of him.
4: It wasn't the end of his career, however, as it turned out O'Farrell was sacked. Best returned to the team, but the problems continued. And on the 1st of January, 1974, George Best played his last game for Manchester United in a 3-0 defeat by Queen's Park Rangers in London. Ten days later, he quit, and it wasn't an easy decision.
1: Yeah, I was in a weird situation, really, because I still loved playing and I wanted to play. I could see the club... The team were going to have problems. I was having problems off the field, you know, with press and, and, and I was still very shy as a person. You know, I still find it difficult to talk to people and, and, and be in people's company, uh, or appear in front of cameras. I mean, stuff like that, of course, with experience you, you become used to, but I still wasn't. Uh, you know, I, if I was in a crowded room, I still liked to be in a corner of my own, because I was, I was, sh- I was shy and quiet. Uh, I (laughs) didn't, you know, I wasn't worldly, I didn't really (laughs) know too much to talk about except football. Uh, and I just, the whole thing was a very, very weird situation. And, and the funny thing was, I did feel like opting out, uh, you know, to get away from it. Uh, but I had to make this, did I opt out and leave the one thing that I loved behind? Uh, I didn't want to play for any other club because, you know, Manchester United were, were just Manchester United. Uh, but also I didn't want to be in the situation I was in. So I ended up with a dilemma of this, you know, what am I going to do? And I took uh, the decision and figured that I was just going to drop out, you know, at, at age 26, really. In the following months,
4: best play for minor league teams. He was fined £40 pounds for driving with excess alcohol, and he was faced with a dilemma about what to do for the future.
1: When I decided not to play, I I, I opened a business. I went into the nightclub business, and, 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 of course, I'd started drinking... Uh, a lot more than I'd ever done before, and I suppose, no, I now know why, because I was trying to sort of cloud issues and use booze to do it, because it made me feel good, you know, it took away all the problems, except that when it was taking away problems, it was also adding problems, uh, so it also became a, a headache, uh, and later years became even more of a headache, so I, I was trying to hide, really, uh, behind a bottle most of the time.
4: Despite the drinking, Bess was still at the peak of his football career, still talented and in 1976 decided on a new venture for the future.
1: I missed playing and I didn't want to play in England, so I decided America was the new, big, exciting era of, of, of football. So I went off there thinking exactly, you know, it's a change of venue, you know, bit of sun, get away from the hassles, nobody knows me really, uh, and start anew really, and that was my idea. And it worked for a little while. Uh, you know, I was voted Player of the Year with every team I played for. I won a goal the season contest and th- You know, things like that. I was the, the highest goal scorer season after season, uh, and I enjoyed the lifestyle and the football. It wasn't the same as playing for Manchester United, but it was. You know, I was enjoying living there uh, and not being easily recognised and uh, having a private life. Uh, I enjoyed that side of it, but always this nagging thing, you know, the booze was always there, always hanging around, uh, and it, be- it was becoming a bigger problem, because my binges were becoming longer, uh, I was drinking more, uh, for the same reasons, you know, I was trying to, any problems arose, I used to think, I mean, if, if, if it was too hot one day, I drank, to, you know, to make it easier, if it was raining one day, I, I drank because it was raining, you know, I, I was getting to a stage where I didn't really need an excuse, I was drinking because I enjoyed drinking
4: in the United States, best played for the Los Angeles Aztecs, but he missed training with them. He also played in Florida and San Jose, but it was in Los Angeles in 1978 that he met his wife-to-be, Angela MacDonald.
1: I did, yeah, I met, uh, I met Angela in, in Los Angeles. Uh, she followed me. I went from there to Florida and then back to San Jose, and she stuck with me and, you know, tried to make it work, but she was fighting uh, against the old demon booze and found it very difficult uh but we had some good times you know through in the in the sober periods uh, uh we had a son we had callum while we were over there uh which was you know un- unbelievable and i thought well this is the one thing if anything's going to make me realize or see sense i went through a couple of hospital treatments in san jose where the baby was born and things went uh, we going okay for a while but i always went back to, to it you know i always disappeared went off in my binge and it just wasn't working uh in the end uh angela said to me you know you're gonna have to sort yourself out and i tried what i thought all the possibilities i'd gone in for hospital treatment i'd, I'd gone i went for a, a year one period without a drink thinking i had it licked and then of course after the year figured it was safe to pick up a drink but <laughs> that was back to where i started of course.
4: Since then, George has separated from his wife Angie and three years ago quit the States, quit his marriage and returned to England.
1: I came back new and I was facing bankruptcy. I had, I'd left my wife, I'd left a son in San Jose. I'd left the house with the furniture, I'd left a car. And I landed in, in England with not a penny in my pocket, uh, going to stay with my mother-in-law, uh, not really knowing what, what the hell I was going to do. So I really was in a, in a, a terrible state. The World Cup was was starting. Uh, I had a a chance of working on the TV doing some commentating because Northern Ireland were in the finals. Uh, I did one game, then I did another one. I did a half a dozen, and all of a sudden, you know, people were seeing me again regularly. I was, you know, dressed quite smart. I looked not bad (laughs) considering what I'd been through. Uh, I started getting one or two offers in, Uh, and a lot of work started coming in again. I started trying to be as, re- as reliable as I could and I started, I became really reliable. I started training hard. Uh, I stopped boozing and once in a while i go, i go out and I was still going off, you know, on a tangent. Uh, I was getting more and more work. I was playing a lot of exhibition games, uh, brief spells with Bournemouth and clubs were coming in and I, I started playing for fun. Uh, I felt all the pressure <coughs> was off me but I was still worried about the drink so I went off to Norway. Uh, About six or seven months ago, on my own, I I jumped on a plane. I went over there. I met a a friend of mine. I went and I had an implant of of a drug called Antibuse in my stomach, which makes it impossible for me to drink. And I did it when I was sober and as a safety valve. Uh, I can't touch a drop because I just found out since that the, the, the drug apparently has been taken off the market because people have died from it, from testing it or trying to drink with it so it's become too dangerous for certain people to use, or for most people to use. Uh, but it's, it's in there, and it's, it's really a safety valve. Since then, this last year has just been unbelievable. You know, my son's now three. Uh, I have a great relationship with him. I work for Breakfast TV regularly. I have a, a couple of publishers want me to write another book. <laughs> my wife is actually in America negotiating for a film deal for my last book, uh, so that's a possibility. So there's a, a tremendous amount of good stuff. On at the moment.
4: Today George Best is thirty-eight. He plays the odd exhibition game or testimonial game, but in Manchester he's remembered as the star of their great team of the late 1960s. Many would say that his talent was squandered at too early an age, namely in his mid-twenties, and one of his old friends, Jeff Baker, claims that most of the problem was due to the public pressure.
9: His his whole life was was like that, really. You couldn't go to the cinema really without people bothering you in the interval or Even during the film, people would be crawling along the floor in the dark asking for his autograph. Um, You know, it's nice that people care so much to do it. And to George's credit, I never ever ever saw him say no or be nasty to anybody. When we lived in in the flat in Putney, kids used to come up to the flat, they found out where he lived, and he never ever once turned them away or said no. He'd open the door and bring them in and show them his trophies and his caps. And he was always more than nice to him. In fact, that was possibly one of George's... Biggest failings in life, he couldn't say no. And the views of Jimmy Greaves, himself an alcoholic, who shared the
4: football stage with Best.
8: A lot of footballers, most of us in actual fact, are ugly buggers. um, But George had the fortune to be a really handsome man. And uh, he was really the first professional footballer ever to capture the imagination of women and women's magazines and become really a sex symbol. And uh, George started it all, really. And I think this was a a particular pressure that um, he must have found very difficult to handle because here's a boy from uh, Ireland who's come over to big cities, uh, to big operators, to um, the land uh, that uh, and a way of life that he knew nothing or very little about. Uh, And people are pushing him and pulling him in uh, every direction. Uh, and really i think it got to the stage where um obviously he, he he didn't have the equipment to cope with it. also the comments of
4: dennis law who played with best at manchester
6: towards the late 60s i think you know that he'd got this fantastic name and probably for the first time he started to be a little bit greedy that would probably be the only criticism i could ever point at him and that would be playing. And where there was a better chance for Bessie to pass to me or to pass to another player who had a better opportunity than him to score, Bestie would try and beat that extra man. And although many times when he did do that, he would score or make a good cross, I just felt that if he was going to be classed as the best player in the world, then that which came into his game being a bit selfish didn't put him up there with the Pellys and, for me, Puskus and Di Stefano.
4: But most importantly, the views of the current Manchester United team. They're now challenging for Championship Honours. Their manager is Ron Atkinson. Their captain, Brian Robson. In a moment, Atkinson, but first, Robson's view
1: of best. If you want a 2 nil up um, and you just want to keep the ball, all you'd need to do is give it to George, and he'd probably keep it for you for about five minutes. Um, and the old players that I've spoke to as well, they just say that he was such a fabulous player to play with, not just for his dribbling ability, but also that he would tackle back and he'd work hard. Um, And all-round when I've watched him, when I was a young lad, he was just a fantastic player because he had this all-round ability. And the main thing is that he could take four or five people on at the same time and score your goals.
8: Best at his peak would have won us the championship on two occasions at least the last couple of years. Um, If Maradona is worth five million pounds then George Best would have to come into that category Um, and I would dearly love to have him or somebody of his ilk in the side at this present moment in time. In the last
4: five weeks George Best has again taken to drink. He still lives in England and he claims that his drinking is now under control. His football career is finished but this star of the sixties and seventies is still optimistic.
1: The way it's looking I can only go up and I feel proud of myself because I know a lot of people and I see players of my own age today who are in a terrible state and some of them don't even drink (laughs) or have never drunk or not drunk a lot. Things could be better and the important thing is I feel happy with myself and I'm starting to be proud of myself which I wasn't for a long, long time. I train every day, wherever I am or whatever I'm doing, I set aside a certain amount of time to keep my my body fit. Uh, I'm probably fitter now than I was maybe six or seven years ago when I was 29, 30, 31. Uh, and that's an achievement for me. Uh, I wake up every morning with a clear head and I slap myself in the back and say, well done. And I try and get through that day and that's really the way I I take it.
0: Second minute of extra time. George Best has put Manchester United into the lead. Bobby Charlton sinks to his knees. Nobby Stiles does a cartwheel. United are in the lead again, two goals to one. Two and a half minutes into this first period of extra time. A brilliant bit of running there by George Best, who saw the gap, went round a defender, took Enrique one way, jinked round him. That's the goalkeeper. Went forward again and slammed it into an empty net. There it is. United are in the lead again. And the red and white banners really are waving now, way to our right.
4: On the day that programme was broadcast, George Best was arrested on a charge of drunken driving. On December the 18th, he was sent to jail and was released in February. Today, he commutes between Chelsea in London and Glasgow in Scotland, and his manager says that George is still aware of, and still trying to cope with, his problems with alcohol. His company runs a private member's dining club in Mayfair in London, and he's just signed a new contract as a sports analyst with the BBC.